Hey guys, welcome. I'm glad y'all are here. Uh, my name is Ryan Lassiter, and uh, I am the uh, preaching minister at Hunter Hills Church of Christ in Prattville, Alabama, which is right outside of Montgomery. I'm just going to wait a second, because I, I want to introduce myself to the dogs here. It is hard to find this room, right? Yeah, y'all make a statement and say, why'd you do that to Ryan? Everybody pull out your phone and tweet the mic code. <laughs> Hashtag move Ryan out. <laughs> that would be fun to do to him. He would be mad at me. Um, are you doing it? <laughs> Done. Um, all right, as I was saying, I'm Ryan, and I'm the uh, preaching minister at Hunter Hills Church of Christ in Prattville, Alabama, which is basically Montgomery, Alabama, which is just south of Birmingham, which is south of Nashville. Now you're getting it. We're southeast there. I grew up in Montgomery, lived around South Carolina, West Texas with some of my friends here, and uh, then recently, three years ago, moved back to preach there. So that's enough about me. Um, one day my wife will be out here, and you'll get to meet her. I'll talk about her in case she actually listens to the recording. Um, Sarah, and I have four little kids, and she's at home wrangling them, so uh, she's going to be mad at me when I get home. But um, I'm glad y'all are here, excited about this conversation uh, this is something that I have kind of been talking about with my church, and we've been trying to explore a bit together, and I'm going to try really hard not to preach today, um, but I like doing that better than teaching classes, because then you can't give feedback. But um, <laughs> no, but I, I'll share, and I'm not great at scripting questions, so at the end, I think there will be plenty of time. As I said, I prepared for a 45-minute class, and to not take the full 45 minutes, and then found out it was an hour, so there should be plenty of time. If I speak for longer than 30 minutes in my church, people leave, so I'm not going to do that here. But I am going to read from Mark chapter 12. Uh, we've been talking about at our church this year, uh, what would it mean to be a people who lean into the greatest commandment? So I want to read this text and then pray for us and then spend some time talking about it and why it's been so important uh, recently in my life and life of this church that I'm a part of. So it's Mark chapter 12, verse 28, and obviously there are several recordings of the greatest commandment, but I think this one's the best, and I'll, um, I'll tell you why in a little bit later. So Mark chapter 12, verse 28. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating, and noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked them, of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, Jesus answered, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind with all your strength. And the second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There's no commandment greater than these. Well said, teacher, the man replied. You were right in saying that God is one and there is no other but him. And to love him with all your heart and with all your understanding, with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings or sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And from then on, no one dared ask him any more questions. Let me uh, pray for us, and then we'll have a conversation here together. God, we are grateful for this day and grateful for what you're doing uh, this week and the way that your spirit is at work in our lives. And I pray that today in this room here gathered that this text we've heard would speak into our lives and into our context and our situations and would send us out into the world to be a people shaped by this commandment. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. Amen. So I like to play these like what if type scenario things. Um, 
this is a really bad example, but you know, sometimes people will do to you like, hey, uh, you got two friends, and like, if we're both drowning, which one would you save, right? I love to ask people crazy questions like that. So how about this? The house is on fire, your house is on fire, and you only have time to get a few things out. What do you take? Don't answer it, but think about it for a moment. Are the people already out? Let's assume your kids get out, okay. and your spouse, okay. unless you didn't want them out, then you have that choice, but, uh, <laughs> just kidding. No, so just let's, get, get me out of the house. Okay. Out. What things are we getting? Your loved ones are out. Now, do you get the dog? You leave the cat, amen? Amen. This is a good room. Yeah, what do you grab? You know, uh, in my neck of the woods, unfortunately, I've, I've known people whose houses burned down and they grabbed an armful of guns. That was the thing, yeah. right? Kind of wild. Um, that wouldn't be the first thing I'd grab, obviously. Uh, although I do have some family heirloom guns, but they could stay behind. You don't have to grab pictures anymore. You grab a hard drive, which is nice. But what would you grab? You just got one thing you can get. What do you get? And so think about that for a moment, and I think that's kind of the situation that Israel is in when Jesus comes along and shares this commandment. Because in a sense, their whole spiritual house is on fire. Everything they know is a little bit out of place. They have these promises from God to be back in the land and have everything together and everything's going to work out great. And they are back in the land, thankfully. And Babylon is gone, thankfully, but Rome is there. And Rome will let you in as long as you buddy up with them. And if you don't, it's not a good place to be. So has God been faithful? Where is God? Or has his promises come true? Has he neglected Israel? And in some sense, their spiritual house is a bit on fire. And they've got to figure out what to do and what they're going to grab a hold of. And they have some choices that have been taking place that they could lean into. Um, for example, you've got the Qumran community who said, let's do it this way. Let's just get out. Let's retreat somewhere and be holy and pure and get out of Rome. That's kind of nice sometimes, right? Just get away and lock yourself in a monastery. That's what I like to do um, sometimes at the end of a church service. But, uh, yeah, you could leave, you could be reclusive, or you could go the way of the zealots. This one's fun too. Let's get some swords. Let's mount some horses and let's fight. Let's get violent. And let's face it head on, let's restore Israel to its rightful place. That's another option. You could go the way of the Pharisees. Let's keep clinging to the old traditions and power. Let's keep one foot in Rome enough that Rome will give us power. And us in power can oppress the others and we'll cling to the old ways and we'll keep the holy days and the purification rites and all the things that we like to do. So there's a few options there. And this scribe wants to know what would be most important, Jesus. What's the one thing in all the law that we should cling to? And Jesus says, well, love God, love your neighbor. You can follow and lean into the way of Jesus and lean into the gospel, or you can try another way. And I think we hear that today in our world and we wonder, isn't that just a bit too simple? Because we like really complex things. We don't like simple answers. Uh, for example, any of you ever, anybody fan of Malcolm Gladwell's Revisionist History podcast? Well, who has never heard of it? Okay, go listen to that podcast. There's two seasons out, third one's coming out in summer. It's amazing. He's the best storyteller I've heard. But he's got one episode uh, that was in, I think it was episode one of season two, about the Toyota Sticky Accelerator incident. Y'all remember that? When all the Toyota cars and Lexuses are accelerating out of control, 
and there was a couple of unfortunate accidents and people were dying and they couldn't figure out, Toyota can't figure out what's wrong and so all these experts get involved and they come up with all these things that are happening that, that, that are causing the problem. Somebody out here was saying, here's what's happening. In every incident, they're in a rental car, they're in a car they don't know, there's an extra floor mat. We think the accelerator is actually sticking by the mat and your body, in, in an intense moment like that, the people are actually hitting the accelerator, not the brake, and they, they're not stopping the car, they're actually causing the acceleration. And so Malcolm Gladwell gets with people and they do these studies and prove that in a moment like that, your body will react that way. They also take a Toyota, they open it all the way up on a track, and then they slam on the brakes and every time they stop the car. The brakes will always overcome it. So they present this, and whatever the government official over transportation says, no, 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 that's not the case. You need to be careful with Toyotas. We need to investigate Toyota, and they make all this big deal out of it. And, and even in the end, they're saying it's Toyota's fault, and Toyota doesn't know what to do, so they're trying to save face and come up with something. And all along, it was people are pressing the gas pedal and not the brake in that moment. But that's just too easy. That's too simple. It can't be that simple, right? We need a complex answer. So when it comes to retirement, saving money, you want to do right with money, this is what they tell you, right? Get out of debt, save more, or, or save, spend less than you make, save, and over time, that'll work out. Like, no, let's, let's buy gold. Or, <laughs> this is recorded, so my brother-in-law will never answer. I could buy these Legos, he says, at this yard sale, and I've looked on eBay, and they'll sell for this much. You get where I'm going, right? It's just too easy to put money in, in a mutual fund and save. No, we got to do something really complex. Or I've, I've tried to lose weight a few times in my life, and, and I love a good fad thing, you know? But every time what works for me is just eat a little less and run a little bit more. But I want like a trick. I don't want to do that. <laughs> I want something that's, that's complex and confusing. And that's kind of the world that we live in here. And so I imagine this guy goes to Jesus and he's like, okay, what's the most important thing? And the great rabbi is going to pull out the Torah and going to start a debate. We're going to get into something really deep. Well, let's look at the way this was written in the Hebrew. And I'll come up with some crazy thing. There's all kinds of things Jesus would pull from, and Jesus just pulls two verses together, and he says, here's the most important thing. Love God, love your neighbor as yourself. He brings them back to a very basic, old, ancient command and says, all of the prophets, all the law, all of your burnt offerings, all of your purification rites, everything is summed up and hinged upon these two things. Love God, love your neighbor. And then, here's my favorite part. This is why I like Mark's version the best. In verse 34, Jesus says that when you get this, you are not far from the kingdom of God. I've been in countless Bible studies. I've sat with my own elders and we talk about what is the kingdom of God? What does it mean to be a part of the kingdom of God? And we're looking for something complex. And Jesus seems to think when you get out in the world and you love your neighbors, you're getting glimpses of the kingdom of God, the reign and rule of God in this world and on this earth. If you want to be a part of God's kingdom movement and what God is doing in the world of, of God's kingdom coming on earth, Jesus says, well, go out and love God, love neighbors. It's that easy. You don't even have to study Greek to know that. You don't have to go to seminary to know that. You don't have to be a professional to know that. You don't have to be an ordained minister. We're all caught up in that story of going out. And i got to think, what about the temple practices? What about the Sabbath keeping? What about purification rites and burnt offerings and... 
we might say, well, what about our, you know, worship styles? And what about our, uh, all the other things we could, we could throw on there? And Jesus says, no, it's all summed up in and hinged upon loving God and loving neighbor. Um, Matt threw me off when he came in here. He wanted to sit in the back, and now he's stuck up front. Um, <laughs> and so here's why this is so important for me in my life and in my church. I think the American church is in a very similar situation. Let me say maybe the Western church, but I only know one context. Especially in the Southeast, I see it more so than some of you might outside the Bible Belt. I think we're in the same situation. I think our spiritual house is on fire, though we often don't like to admit it. The church is losing its place as the centerpiece of culture. The church is no longer the power source. We're finding ourselves on the margin, and we've got some choices to make. And we have some who retreat and become the Qumran community, and they go into their caves and try to be pure and push the world out. That's one option. And then we have some who want to fight it. Um, they want to get caught up with the powers. They want to be like the Pharisees, perhaps, and keep a foot in Rome. And I shouldn't do this, but Jerry Falwell Jr. comes to mind. Well, let's move on from that. Um, let's get caught up in the culture power wars and the power struggle. And let's get church back to its centerpiece. Or... We could take up the way of Jesus in the world. We could quit panicking about not being the center of culture, and we could lean into the way of Jesus. But this is the case. The church is no longer the center of culture. And you guys, some of you who don't live in Alabama, you see that a lot more readily than we do. We still think church is the centerpiece, right? We still want to hang the Ten Commandments in the courthouses and those sorts of things. And I'm not saying that's wrong. I'm just saying those are the conversations we have. Then I go on trips to Michigan and Portland, Oregon, and, and they're like a preacher, what do you do? What does that mean? That's weird, right? It's a different culture. And so we're, we're a little bit behind. But this was the world that our, or that our country was born in, that the church that we know, that we were brought up in, comes from. So my wife and I lived in West Texas. And we took a tour on some West Texas towns after we had our second baby and wanted to get away. And we couldn't go far. So we were, we were forced to visit you know, towns like uh, Marfa, Texas. Anybody besides the Midland people here been to Marfa, Texas? Yes! It's weird, right? I'm from Lubbock, so... Oh, well. <laughs> Marfa's a weird place. You should go there one day. I can't even describe it. My favorite thing to tell about Marfa, Texas, is they thought they were going to strike oil there, and they built this giant, big, pretty hotel. There's no oil in Marfa, Texas. But now it's like this cultural icon, and there's some, some illegal drugs probably used in that town a lot. <laughs> but, so anyways, we went to Marfa, and we went to Fort Davis, and uh, Alpine, I think that's out there. And one of the things you see, especially in those Texas towns, you'll see them in the Alabama little towns. The city I live in is a little bit like this. In fact, my city's a perfect example of this. You go downtown, and there's the courthouse and the jail and the sheriff's office, the center of town, and what's across the street? Church. Church. In Prattville, I kid you not, across the street, they share a parking lot. First United Methodist Prattville, First Baptist Prattville, and First Presbyterian Prattville all share a parking lot together. And the Episcopal Church is on the corner. And that was the world in which the church was come up in. We were the center of town. We were what people did. You didn't play, even when I was a kid, we didn't play baseball on Wednesday night. We didn't practice on Wednesday night. We didn't do events on Sundays. And now my, my cousin's daughter does travel softball 40 weekends a year. And, um, you know, faithful Christian people. But this is just the world we're in. Church has moved to the outskirts. It used to be that if you got up on a Sunday morning, the streets were empty because everybody was at church. And now you get up on a Sunday morning and people are at Starbucks and people are at the local breakfast joint. And our churches are empty. 
And everybody's kind of panicking a little bit. What are we going to do? How do we get more people to come to church? How do we get church to be valued? What should we do? And I want to claim that we need to lean into this ancient, simple commandments. Love God, love neighbor. Let's quit trying to program our way out of this. Let's quit trying to uh, make it complex and hard, and let's lean into living the way of Jesus. We can keep putting all of our efforts into building churches and programs. We can keep trying to hire pastors that are cooler, you know, jeans getting skinnier and glasses getting cooler, and, you know, we're looking for those kind of hip pastors. We need beards. We need beards, like gyms, you know. That's, <laughs> if we get a bearded pastor, we'll draw people to our church, you know. And, uh, well, if we tweak our worship, <laughs> it doesn't work. <laughs> it ran them out. Um, you know, we can, we, can, uh, we can come up with these sermon series called At the Movies. There's a church, I'm not going to tell you their name, in Arizona, that for their Easter service had like a Jurassic Park theme. They had a blow-up dinosaurs on stage. So we can do that, or we can just get back to the basics of what really matters, to be the people of Jesus. And you can put whatever coat you want to put on it, but let's lean into loving God and loving neighbor. In their book, The Neighboring Church, they share this quote from U.S. Senate Chaplain Richard Halverson. To tell you how much I keep up with things, I have no idea who that is, if they're still a U.S. Senate chaplain. But I love this quote. The church began as a fellowship of men and women centered on Christ, and it went to Greece and became a philosophy. It went to Rome and became an institution. And it went to Europe and became a culture. And it came to America and became an enterprise. And we come out of a movement that wants to restore the church. And I love this. I want to restore the church too, but I don't care anything about worship styles. I don't care anything about restoring a proper order to worship. I say I don't care anything. That's a little flippant. You know, I have to care a little bit because people care about that. But I don't want that to be the central focus. I want to be, as he starts off this quote, a fellowship of men and women centered on Christ. I once got to sit at the feet of Rubel Shelley for uh, his final stint as the president of Rochester College, and he taught a class. Jim and I were in there together. And I'll never forget because Rubel Shelley was who I wanted to be. I mean, he built a 2,500-member church out of a, di a literal dying church. His story is they said, come to Woodmont Hills. It wasn't Woodmont Hills at the time. Come to whatever it is. Preach us to death. That's what they asked him to do. And then it blew up to this 2,500-member church, and all the ministers wanted to be Rubel Shelley. And Rubel sits us down at this table and is talking to us. He says, if I could do over again, I would not do what I did. I would build the church like an Alcoholics Anonymous group, a fellowship of men and women centered on Jesus, doing life together. And it's interesting to me that the church was known as a people of the way. Not a people of sound doctrine, not a people of right beliefs, not a people who worshiped a certain way, but a people who lived and embodied a certain way in, in the world. And if the church has any attraction to it, it's not dinosaurs on the stage. You can amen that. Please don't put dinosaurs on your stage. Amen. It's, yes. Amen. It's not cars on stage. It's not all these trendy, cool things. It's people who embody the way of Christ in the world. So what would it look like, and this is the question me and my church asked, what would it look like if we were to live out these commandments? And the first thing, and here's our problem in our Western world, is love God. Let's get holy. And I'm all for personal holiness. Don't get me wrong. I'm all for spiritual disciplines. I'm also for doing that for the sake of the world and not just some inner life that we have together. So we immediately talk about you got to get holy and you got to be holy. And that's most important. Love God. And then number two, once we sort that out, then we'll talk about loving neighbors. <coughs> Any Richard Beck fans in here? Mm -hmm. Yes, Richard Beck. He's an amazing 
amazing teacher. His book, Reviving Old Scraps. Anybody read that one? I love that book. In there he talks about that there are two commandment kind of people and one commandment kind of people when it comes to the greatest commandments. So the two commandment people said, first we love God, then we love others. And it sounds really noble and holy, but the problem, he says, is you can have people who love God and eventually learn to hate others. And you'll have them say things like they almost hate because they love God so much. And he says if you hear someone say, I love God first and foremost, and then I'll love others, he said, watch out because they're about to hurt somebody in the name of God. <laughs> Think Westboro Baptist Church. Why do they go in their minds? We could say why they do what they do, but in their minds, why do they go and picket funerals? Why do they tell people that God hates them? Because they think they are doing the work of God. We are loving God by setting you right. But Richard Beck says, really, these commandments and a lot of other scholars say, these are read together. Jesus isn't saying, here's one, here's two. He's saying you love God, and really the big way in which we learn to love God is by loving others. When you start getting out and doing life with others and experiencing God in the other, you start being formed more and more to be a person who is holy, who is a disciple of Jesus. And so we can't separate these two things out. They're so caught up together that we are actually loving God by loving our neighbors, which makes sense. What does 1 John 4 verse 20 say? Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. You can't love God and hate another. And if you separate these two things out, that's where we'll get to. All right, so here's what we said as a church. We wanted to be a people who would get out and live seriously these commandments in our neighborhoods and in our community. And what would it look like if we would pursue this? And here's what we first do. What's the program we should come up with for this? And what pastor should we hire and call him the greatest commandments pastor? And he's going to be over our program that helps you love your neighbor. Which is what we do, and it drives me nuts. I know we have to do these things, okay, but it just wears me out after a while that we overprogram things. So the first thing we told our church is we will not start a program. We will not start a program for learning to love God and love neighbors. What we will do is try to equip and empower you and get stories told and talk about ways in which you are learning to do this out in the world. I forever hear people say at my church, I wish we were more involved in the community. And I'm a, you know, a pastor, so I can't say this, but I want to look at them and go, that's on you too, right? If you want to be more involved in the community, get out and go meet your neighbor. Get out and go to the local school. Yeah, we do some things and we facilitate some things, but we're not going to be you know, the power source through which everyone learns to love their neighbors. Get out and start actually meeting your neighbors. So we were not going to start a program uh, because programs, they start. And they end, and they die out, and they fizzle out. And I'm pretty sure Jesus didn't say, do this for a little while. But if you fire that pastor or he quits, then you can take a break from it. So we didn't want to do that. We just wanted to learn to love neighbors as a way of life. So let me give you an example. My wife reads, um, uh, she likes to get caught up in these stories online of people we don't know. <laughs> and then start talking about them like we know them. <laughs> All right, so this is a, a sad story. The story is sad how she got caught up in this person's life, but I don't know if you guys remember that there was a, a young pastor in South Carolina who, um, this was, I think it made national news, but he got up and he went to the gym early one morning and somebody broke in his house and didn't know somebody was there and ended up killing his wife and he has a young child. And so it's he and this young child left trying to figure out what they're going to do with their lives, um, which is a tragic story. And my wife got caught up in that story, reading about it constantly. Like 18 months later, he's blogging about it, and she's reading it and crying and telling me. And I'm like, you know, I have enough. 
grief in my own life. I don't even know who this guy is, you know. I'm, I'm moved by it. And, but she's reading it, and one of the things he says was, my wife and I used to play out in the driveway, uh, and we did this because we didn't want to play in the backyard and hide from neighbors. And so Sarah said, let's start doing that. Let's start playing in our front yard. And we had bought this house when we moved to Alabama that had a big backyard, which you don't get a lot in West Texas. And so we were really excited about this big backyard and our privacy fence because we're in Alabama and my boys, they go to the bathroom in the backyard and they try to do it in the front yard. And I really try to not let them do that. We're backyard kind of people. You need to hide us, right? But we said, let's go. We're not going to add a program to our lives to try to meet our neighbors. Let's just start playing in the driveway and see what happens. I kid you not, by the end of the week, just from riding bikes in the driveway, um, we found, we met the couple across the street, we're still pretty new in the neighborhood, who are um, married, they're an interracial couple who feel really out of place in, you know, the Montgomery, Alabama area, and are wondering, you know, do we have friends, they have a young baby they're trying to raise, and a teenage daughter. There's a family down in the cul-de-sac whose teenage daughter had a brain tumor that we knew nothing about. The neighbors next door were in the Air Force, and they were a young couple who had no friends, no family. They were getting babysitters off the internet. And here we are, hiding in our backyards. We didn't have a program. We didn't change anything. We simply took what we were already doing and just moved it out into the streets. And we started meeting neighbors. And so that's what we told our church. We're not going to program this. We want you to think what you're already doing and put it out in the places where you work, the places where you live, the places where you play. So that was one thing we said we are going to do. The second thing we said we are going to do, we are going to quit trying to make the community come to us. I am absolutely convinced the days of drawing big crowds are just fading. And some of that is because of people my age and younger who just, we don't really commit to big gatherings like that. We like smaller things that take place. We did this big, uh, we call our area the River Region. And so we had 100 plus churches involved. The minor league baseball stadium gave us the stadium for free to have this giant worship night. And so on the board is some pastors who are older than me uh, in their 60s or so. And they're remembering the days when they would do things like this, and they're like, we're going to have 5,000-plus people. And I'm trying to be positive in the back of my mind. I'm like, gosh, I hope we get 500. <laughs> we had like 1,500. They felt a little bit defeated, but I think that's the world that we're currently in. I don't think anybody thought it was a bad event or a bad idea. You, just, you don't draw crowds like you used to. So we said, you know what? We're done trying to get people to come to our church all the time by trying to be culturally relevant, whatever that means. Because you can make your church as relevant as you want to. You can do a series called, you know, The Gospel According to Star Trek, which I really would love to do one day. You know, you can do the Jurassic Park theme and bring the dinosaurs up like that church I told you about did. Yes. You can sing Taylor Swift songs to Jesus if you want. <laughs> you can hire a pastor who dresses and looks and talks like Justin Timberlake. And at some point in your service... You're going to ask everybody to partake of the body and blood of Jesus Christ. That's weird. There's no way to make that culture relevant. And so, again, I know I may be wrong about this, um, and some people disagree, and we can talk about that later if you want, but I just don't think the church service is the place to make disciples. The church service is the place to reach the community. I think the church service, and I've learned this from uh, uh, my preaching mentor, is for encouraging and inspiring the church to be the church, for grieving together, 
for sharing together, for learning to do this one another, one another life together. And then we're drawn together. We do this life and we're sent out into the world loving God and loving neighbors. So we're going to quit trying to draw people to our churches. Um, the book, The Neighboring Church, is written by a couple of megachurch pastors, or they may call themselves former megachurch pastors because they took, went and grabbed a hold of the Jurassic Park church service kind of thing, right? That's what we'll, we'll start labeling that. Yeah. <laughs> and they went this route for so long, and then they looked out and realized, we're not really making disciples of Jesus. We don't really have a lot of depth here. What, what do we do? And so they decided to lean into this. But this all started with one of the pastors. They did this event where they were going to reach the community, the non-Christians. How? With a Christian rock concert, right? Uh, I'll quote the great theologian Hank Hill who says, that's a joke, any King of the Hill fans? <laughs> when his son gets into uh, Christian music and the guy like rocks out on his guitar for Jesus, um, he says, can't you see? You're not making Christianity better. You're only making rock and roll worse. Um, <laughs> clearly, I'm not a fan of contemporary Christian music. But, so they have this Christian rock concert, and they're going to draw the community, and it's going to be a huge deal, just like that event I was telling you about. So he shows up. And he looks out in a 2,000 uh, capacity seating area, and there's about 200 or less people. And it's like 30 minutes to start time. And so he does what all good pastors do. He gets on the phone with his friends. He says, come, bring everybody that you see. This is embarrassing. Bring some people. So they have this event with 500 people. We're expecting 2,000. It was a total failure. And so they all go out to a bar afterwards <laughs> to lament together. And they get to this bar, and there's this long line, and this crowd of people, and it's a block from their church. And he asks the hostess there, what's going on tonight? Like, oh, there's a live musical performance, which is what he was trying to do as well. And it dawned on him in that moment, why are we trying to get people to come here when there's already a gathering happening over here? And you're going to say, I went to this class, and this minister told us to go to a bar with a gathering of people. I did. You should. Go, go to the people. Let's quit trying to get people to come to us. Forever the American church has made culture their own missionaries. You do the hard work of coming to us. You do the hard work of learning our language. You do the hard work of understanding what it means to eat of the body and blood of Jesus every Sunday. You come and cross our threshold and get in a really uncomfortable and awkward place. And if you're truly you know, what we call an unchurched person, church will always be a little weird. There's no way to make it not weird for them. And that's okay, because I don't think church should be their first entry point to Jesus. It should be us. We have this big church in our community that says on their website, bring your neighbors to church so that they can hear a clear presentation of the gospel. To which I say, why have they not heard a clear presentation of the gospel? Because we're their neighbors. Why have they not seen the gospel on their streets? Because we're their neighbors. And so we forever try to get people to come and do the hard work of being the missionaries. My wife and I did mission work in China, and we had to learn... A little bit about Chinese culture. We had to learn what we were going to eat. We had to learn things about how we'd interact with people. We had to do some hard work there. Thankfully, we didn't have to learn the language because they, the ones we were working with spoke English. But it was a lot of work to understand their culture because we were going to them. And then the church builds these facilities and says, come to us and do all the hard work. We'll be here waiting on you. And I think those days are done, personally. I think we've got to get out into our communities and get out into the world and get out meeting neighbors. And so we're going to quit trying to draw people to us and we're going to start going to people. And then the last thing we said we would do is, what people should we go to? Here comes the next big great debate that will stall us from actually doing what Christ has called us to. And here's the answer, our literal neighbors. 
don't raise your hands because I don't want to embarrass anyone, but how many of you know the names of your neighbors? I'll embarrass you. Let's all raise our hands. How do you know the name of all your neighbors right around you? I don't, and I'm teaching this class on this. <laughs> I know a few of them. Don't raise your hands for this, but do you know their stories? Do you know their hopes, their dreams, what they're grieving over right now, what they're excited about? We have people right next to us, and you're like, well, they're Christians. Well, Jesus didn't say, love your neighbors yourself unless they're Christians. Love them too, right? Mm -hmm. This isn't just about people and making them transactions. It's also about what God does in us. So we said we would go to our literal neighbors where we work, where we play, our cubicle neighbors, the people that sit next to us at school for our students. We didn't want any excuses for not doing what Jesus said to do, so we said we will go to all of our neighbors. And here's the best part about going to your literal neighbors. Most likely, some of them are not like you. And most likely, you don't like some of them, <laughs> which is where the work of learning to be a disciple of Jesus really gets fleshed out. Because you see, I really like loving my neighbors when they look like me, and they talk like me, and they think like me. I love my Alabama neighbors, my Auburn neighbors. <laughs> you don't have to love them. That's a bit, yeah, that's a, I, I want to create a caveat there. I have in my church in Alabama, I am a Cowboys fan. I have two Philadelphia Eagles fans at my church in Alabama. And I wonder, what is God trying to do to me? <laughs> Can you love your neighbor when they think differently than you? And so it's funny when they're Auburn, Alabama fans or whatever teams you support out there. What if your neighbor's a Republican? What if they're a Democrat? What if they're black? What if they're white? What if they're homeless? What if they're poor? What if they scare you? Jesus says... Love your neighbors. Good Samaritan story, I love that one because that's what the whole thing is coming to light here. You don't get to pick your neighbors. You love those next to you, and when you do that, it's less about what you're doing, you think you're doing to them and in your, their life, but what God's doing in your life. If you've done the messy work of loving somebody really different than you, you start to learn what this commandment's all about and what it'll do to you. So we said we'd go out and we love our literal neighbors. And I'm almost done here. Oh, yeah, we're going to have plenty of time for discussion. Here's my caveat, though. Some of you may go back and go to your church and say, hey, I've got the latest church growth strategy. <laughs> to which I would throw up in my mouth a little bit when I hear that. <laughs> this is not a church growth strategy. This is not a way in which we will get more people to our church. I'm not reacting and saying, hey, no one's coming to churches, so let's love God, love neighbor, and then our churches will fill up. No, your church may never grow from this. Because we're not doing the work of the Hunter Hills Church of Christ when we love our neighbors. We're doing the work of the kingdom of God. Amen. And we're a representation of it at Hunter Hills. And we may say our happy 265 people and 375 on Easter. And that will be our numbers forever. We're not going to quit loving our neighbors. We're not going to quit doing the work of the kingdom of God. So this is not a church growth strategy. It's not how we get people into our assemblies. It's not an evangelism strategy. I have a, um, I forget this is recorded, so they're not a family member, um, <laughs> who says, they're not my immediate family, at some point in their relationships with people in the community, if they get to a point where they're not going to be able to baptize them, they just kind of wash their hands of them. Not because they don't like them, they just got to move on to the work of the Lord, and it sounds really holy, but are we going to love someone if we never get to baptize them? Absolutely. What if your neighbor's a Christian? Love them too, because they, the Christians are really obnoxious too, and they'll grow you in the way of Jesus. This is not an evangelism strategy. This is not a church growth strategy. The churches that 
that I'm a part of, that I'm around, and the conversations that I have. I'm on a, this is not a Church of Christ thing. I'm on an interdenominational pastor's board. And we get together and they lament about nobody's being at their churches. Even the mega church in town is starting to get concerned because they're not getting as many people to their assemblies. And they're trying to come up with the new strategies and growth. And what I think we ought to do is live into what Jesus called us to and let God take care of the rest. Church is going to look different in the future world that we're in. There's going to be more gatherings that are in homes and in communities and they don't come to our buildings. And that's okay because this is about the kingdom of God and not me and my platform and not me and my church. about what God is doing in the world. So every week, and this is my concluding thought before we discuss. I made a lot of notes, but I don't really keep to them here when I teach a class. Every week, I end my service with a benediction. And I say the same thing every week. It's become our liturgy. It drives the church nuts sometimes. They laugh at me, but they love it, I think. (laughs) But I end every week by telling them, you are not dismissed. This is not over. This is not the end of your worship. This is the beginning of your worship. You are actually sent out into the world now. You are all missionaries called by God, ministers of the gospel of Jesus Christ, wherever you may go. And half my church goes to Las Casitas Mexican Restaurant. That's the first place that they are sent to to be ambassadors for Jesus Christ, to be missionaries in the world. We are in a culture that needs missionaries, and that's what we are all always called to. This is the identity of God's people going back from Abraham is on the move, always, the sent people of God. Um, We've heard a couple of times in the big gatherings that when the church gets comfortable and gets in a place of power and position, we quit working like the church very well. We always thrive in a minority place and on the margins of society. We are the sent people of God, sent out into the world. It's our identity. As God the Father sends God the Son, who sends God the Spirit into us, sent out. That's the next Acts chapter you know, 1, 2, 3, 4. The church is moving and spreading out. So I tell my church every Sunday, you've been drawn into worship, formed a little bit more into the image of Christ, and it's like a spinning top that brings you in, and then it keeps spinning and launches you out into the world until next week. You are the sent people of God, and what we mean by that is you're sent into the world to love God and to love your neighbor as yourself. What would it look like if your church and my church and everywhere we went quit trying to dream up strategies and programs and quit trying to you know, get all the great thinkers together to figure out how to get the churches big again and make, to make the church great again? All right. Sorry. Um, what if we quit with all of that? And said, what we're going to do is be a people known as those who love God and love their neighbors themselves and let God take care of the rest. So that's my little sermon. That's what I, we are working on at our church. I can tell you some great stories. I have this one really sweet man at my church, Mr. Bill Pogue. He is, um, this is a great story. He's 85 or 6. And he told me that his neighbor across the street, he started rolling up his trash can. This is a quote from Mr. Bill. He goes, you know, because he's too old to do it. And he's dead serious. (laughs) That guy's like 20 years younger than Bill. And he goes, well, I work out every day. So he started rolling this man's trash can up the driveway. The trash man has noticed it. He's now having conversations with a garbage truck driver. He's been giving them cold water and coffee. He's having conversations with his neighbor, all by rolling a trash can. Uh, so we're starting to hear these stories bubble up of things going on. I've had some people that, you know, they've, they've thrown like block parties. You can do that. Um, but I very simply say, if you will put a chair in your driveway and just sit there, it is amazing how many people will talk to you. If you quit going into your garage door like I often do and close it as quick as you can, 
Or this is my favorite when I'm cutting grass and I see I know that neighbor wants to talk. So I just you know I got my headphones on and I just don't look up so they won't catch eyes. If we quit doing that, just be attentive and listen to what's going on around us. Within no time, you will be doing the work of God, and you didn't need a church program to do it. And it's an amazing thing. So, um, with that, that's what we're working on. I'd love next year to come back and tell you more stories that have been born out of that and the work that we're doing. But with that, as I said, I don't script a lot of questions, and I prepared for a 45-minute class, not an hour. And you should all be thankful for that. Nobody, <laughs> I don't think anybody wants to listen to anything for 45 minutes. But uh, with that, are there any thoughts, questions, conversations? Yes. I love this. I'm just going to make that statement. I love the idea of this. Um, last year before coming here, my husband and I are in the process of adoption. And we're adopting a child from Thailand. We already have one oh, cool. from Thailand also. And we were encouraged who, what, what people are on my walls, my pictures, mm. because my daughter's dark skinned. Mm -hmm. And who are the books that you know, we have on our shelf? Does my daughter see any others that don't look like me, right. that look like her? And who sits at my table? Mm. And that really inspired me. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and really, it inspires me for Jesus. Yeah. Right? Um, and I, I sit in my front yard, and I know my neighbors. Right. Because I love people. Right. Um, but what would help me is what are some of the other things that are being done to build relationship? Yeah. Bridges. You got ideas on that? Um, or are you just don't I'm asking. You're I'm asking. asking for more. For more ideas. Not just from you, though. And the move of a good teacher. What does the class do? <laughs> <laughs> How could we um, go beyond... What are other ways? Other ways of building bridges and meeting people in the community, yeah. yeah. The yard is great. I love that. <clears throat> right. But then once you get there... And, and the reality is, the, for a lot of us, too... Now, on my street, and this is because probably of my salary and the home I'm able... To afford, I live with all the people, right? I don't, I don't have, I don't seclude myself in some area where everybody, you know, looks like me. And so my street is very diverse, and I love that we get to meet various people. It's a representation of our community. But as you, what happens if it's not, and you are wanting to get more diverse conversations? Yes, Tammy. Um, coach rec league soccer. Yeah. They always need coaches. I would recommend baseball, baseball. but you can do soccer. <laughs> softball, volleyball, basketball, whatever it is. They're, those are people that you will not have in your church building, but you'll make connections. And those families come with those kids. Yeah. We've yeah. made some of our closest friends, Christian, non-Christian, through um, coaching and um, being in the on the soccer board. Yeah, the that's great. all different. All different. All different, yeah. And yeah. Play, and play in the adult league with that, too. So I had my elders, we read a book together and had this discussion together for a while. One of them brought up, um, rather than trying to get the family at church that plays travel ball all the time, wearing them out about, you know, doing this, say, hey, your neighborhood's the bleachers you're sitting in every weekend with these people. And I, um, I don't coach, but my son plays um, baseball. He's little, he plays coach pitch baseball in the uh, city league. So I've just met tons of people in the city that otherwise I wouldn't have a relationship with. We don't go to the same school. And so, yeah, that's a great, great idea to take advantage of that opportunity while you're out there to treat those like, like neighbors in your neighborhood, get to know them and meet them. And you know what else we don't do a whole lot of is invite people over into our homes. Yes. Um, of all the things that Church of Christ may have done poorly, we were really good at baking a pie and eating together. And we just kind of, at least the church I grew up in, I feel like we've lost a lot of that. 
And um, another conversation we have a lot of is how do we become more racially diverse because we're in a community that is racially diverse and our churches are not. And I think one of the answers is when's the last time you had somebody at your dinner table who wasn't just like you? And most of us, it's crickets in response to that, myself included. I had to intentionally go, okay, I'm going to seek out people different than me and eat with them. That's a big step. And go into their home, you know. So uh, take it to the, to the next step. Jeremy? I was going to say, we, we're kind of doing the same thing where we are. We're, we're doing this whole year about model city, model love. Um, and one of the things we're encouraging our people to do is when Jesus says love even the least of these, in our mind what that means is the people that make you uncomfortable. Right. And so what are some areas in our town, in our communities, where you would be uncomfortable, not unsafe, but uncomfortable? And how can you enter into those areas and love people there? Right. And, you know, I've got a lot of little old ladies who are fighting that, you know, kicking and screaming and no and this and that. But the people that are willing to step out and do that, mm. you can see this remarkable change over the last four months. Yeah. Yeah. As I continue to go out and try to get uncomfortable in areas and find people there to love and to be kind to. Yeah. We've done the same thing. We, we call it getting in the ditch. But And uh, our church building's in an area that's not the greatest in our leadership. Is that we want to stay there. This is where God's put us. So we Amen. just have reached out to, and it's, you know, made people uncomfortable. But, boy, it's been great learning for us. And, you know, we made connections with the homeless. We went to apartment complexes down the street and we draw ice cream and we just said, we're having ice cream Sundays and you're welcome and come join us. We adopted the school down the street and yeah. go Well, so I was going to say another thing I, as my golf course road friends are here, one of the things I've loved seeing them do on Facebook is tutoring at the local schools. And here's the thing, if you go to a school and you sit down with the administrator and say, what do y'all need? They they'd love some people to read and tutor and uh, I could get four or five of these people if we had time to tell you great stories of, of the connections they've made uh, the ministry that's that's come from that so Jim your hands been up yeah so I, I, I just wanted to like touch on the thing you said about your non-family member um, we you know we, <laughs> we do a lot of the same stuff too right and right like the way we do uh, church um, one of the things that we always try to emphasize is that um, if you love somebody based on what they could become, then you don't act, love an actual person, you love a theoretical person. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so you have to actually love the person in front of you regardless of whether or not they change, because they're already made in the image of God. Mm -hmm. um, and then, so when you're involved in all these different things like you're talking about, and I could list off all of those, but one of the things that we did starting too was like, pay attention one day of your life to how many people you come in contact with. And then try and think about how many of those people tomorrow could I just be intentional with? Like, do something on purpose right. that's loving or kind or good or, or whatever. Um, and sometimes you don't even have to try to do anything other than just live your life, but just do something on purpose. Right. No, that's a great point. So as we unfolded this, we did it in a series of sermons, and we wanted to get practices that went with it. And uh, one of them was a simple practice of I wanted people to attentively just walk their neighborhood even once a week. And by attentively, I mean, you know, this isn't the Oprah Winfrey power walk. This isn't with headphones. This is a, a slow, prayerful, spiritual walk. And whenever there's some possible interruption, hear it out. Just some intentional thing. 
do one thing for, for one neighbor, even if it was, here's my evangelism strategy, bake a pecan pie and take it next door if you, I hate evangelism strategy if you have a notice. You know, just get out there and go. John, I have, I have two comments. Um, this whole do thing, I need to turn the recorder on? No, I want it on. Okay. I want it on. This whole thing has been about the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is telling me, this is straight from God himself, you need to come back and demonstrate this. <laughs> <laughs> Let's turn this off. <laughs> tell your wife, tell your four little kids, you're coming back. Um, There's, I don't know what blasphemy in the Holy Spirit is. It seems like money is the issue. Like, the res- how do you uncouple minister salaries from the money? How do you yeah. uncouple the, the, the response we've gotten to a lot of the, the outreach in the community is if we don't make a change, we're not going to be able to do the good works. We're not going to be able to support missionaries. Sure. Not, there's a fear of losing the revenue stream. Yeah, and, you know, so again, I, I'm a big believer in, and this is what my grad school training took me down with, you know, the missional conversation. We're in the the post-Christendom era and churches are getting a little smaller. And I, and I hate to say this because I am a minister who, you know, my living is supported by a church. And there may come a time when I have to find a way to supplement that income, too, in this world. Um, thankfully, I have an engineering degree from Princeton University as well. But um, there may be a time when we do have to think less about, you know, the big big church pastors with their... Big, big salaries, and I'm not serious. I mean, I make a great salary. I'm very well taken care of by my church, but that is a true reality that um, you will let that fear drive you into how you actually go, rather than leaning into where the Spirit may be taking us. And I think the Spirit in our world is taking us into thinking differently about church. And uh, by the way, David Ayers, I was thinking about this, taught a really great class yesterday to think about. You know, you do need some functionality in church. Uh, what do you call it? The scaffolding to yeah. do the ministry and to do those things. But um, you can't let that be the thing that drives, and, and it may change how we staff churches. And I hate to say that, but my church has to be volunteer worship ministers, and we have great worship. We enjoy it. It doesn't have to be, you know, I'll leave it at that. <clears throat> yes? So, um, the Spirit did honestly move me. My sister says all the time, and my daughter is tired of me saying it, but she always says there's a lid for every pot. And, you know, <laughs> honestly, if that blow-up dinosaur gets that person to go to church and learn about Jesus, yes. then praise God. Yeah. The other thing is that we get so caught up in our church, and because I grew up atheist, I was seeking all the time. Mm. And so I really have an understanding of what it's like to walk into a Catholic church and walk into a Baptist mm-hmm. church and walk into a a Mormon situation and walk yeah. into a Jewish temple because I was seeking. Yeah. And that helps me be all things to all people. So when you're asking for suggestions, you know, I suggest that maybe every four months you just go into another church and check it out. Not because that's where you want to start going. You might love your church. But then when your neighbor says, oh, yeah, we go to First Press, you can say, oh, yeah, I went there. 
that pastor seems really great, you know, or, you know, whatever. But yeah. I think that, but being all things to all people, and I was also the minor. I was bust in. I was the minority mm. at my high school, and there is this stigma of where I live is who I am, and mm -hmm. unless you let people get to know you. Okay, so I live in Malibu, and I'm white, and this, and that, but that's not who my friends are. I mean, actually, all my best friends don't live here um, because we have God as our central point, and, um, and that's the commonality, not anything else. That's what brings us all together. So, you know, just seek out other people yeah. and be able to be relatable to them in, in different ways. So you bring up two really good things. One is don't put me down at all. I'm thankful for your comment, and it's perfect. And I've, I've made a caricature of megachurches, by the way. I do love megachurches. They, they do things that, you know, your middle-sized church in Alabama can't mm -hmm. do. And uh, I've, some of my best pastor friends in the area are pastors of what we call the megachurches in our community. So absolutely, yeah, that, that's an excellent point. And the second thing you do bring up that I think is really good is one of the things we're going to have to lean into, which is why I'm, I think the Church of Christ story isn't fully dead yet, because it's a kingdom story, a unity movement, and um, <clears throat> we need to quit thinking so much about just our local church, but the kingdom of God at work in our community, which is represented in many, many churches, even though they think differently about baptism, even though they think differently about this doctrine, this, that, and the other. Get in other churches, meet other people, know what they're up to. Um, and I say this, uh, one of my favorite neighbors is Mrs. Schwalbach. She's a, um, I think she's from Switzerland, and she's a member of First Baptist Prattville. And she makes the best German chocolate cupcakes I've ever had and randomly drops them off at my house. And every time she shows up, the house is dirty. I mean, it, it's crazy. She has a knack for when the kids destroy the place. But um, she's not my competition. She is a fellow worker in the kingdom of God. And if, you know what, if my whole neighborhood goes to First Baptist Prattville, praise God. Now, that's my opinion. You may disagree with that. That's okay. But that's what I think we need to lean into this kingdom movement, get to know other people. But yes, at... I should say, I've made a caricature of megachurches and joked a lot, but there's a lot of really great uh, megachurches. A lot of people have found God through the dinosaurs on the stage. So, absolutely. Yes. So then my next question would be, um, as pastor's wife and as a pastor uh, in our church, uh, when we encourage our community, mm -hmm. our church community, to do this, um, how do we equip them? <clears throat> Because that's awkward when we get into a relationship. That's okay. Yeah. It's not super intimidating for most people. But then you, we're also asking them to be Jesus, and at some point probably to share Jesus. So what do you do with that part of it? Yeah, yeah. No, that's a good question. And this is, you may not like my answer. I preface for that. I don't know. We'll see. <clears throat> but um, sometimes I think we've over thought that. There's a really good little book called uh, Surprise the World, Five Habits of Highly Missional People by Michael Frost. Okay. Anybody know Michael Frost? I know Todd knows Michael Frost. Um, it's a great book, a good tool to give, give uh, your churches, I think, because it does talk about just being the people of God in the community and some very simple practices and steps. But he talks about that moment of, of sharing. We need to quit thinking about creating this transactional moment of, of salvation. Uh, but Hopefully you all could, if somebody asked you, share the reason for the hope you profess. That's a verse, Peter, right? We could all share the reason for the hope we profess. And that doesn't have to be 
you know, systematic theology. It doesn't have to be a clear understanding of baptism and salvation and this, that, and the other. Um, I think that's what we've all been called to. Uh, and again, this is where the work of the local church does come into play. You do have some people who are gifted evangelists at your church that you could you bring into conversation as well, too. Uh, that book makes the case that not all of us are called to be evangelists, which struck me at first, and I thought, well, there's some truth to that. We're not all called to, to, to be the evangelist in the typical sense of the word. Leslie and then Walter. Right, Walter. Yeah. Um, well, I would just say that I, I don't get out a lot. I have, kids <laughs> <laughs> I have a lot of kids at home, and I have homeschool, and so I don't have a lot of opportunities. Um, I don't feel like, and I go to church, and those people are yeah. at church. Right. So um, I, I go to a place and I work out. Those people, a lot of them look like me. But I wouldn't discount those people because they look like me. Absolutely. Um, that's just kind of what I want to say is we're all talking about go look, go find someone who doesn't look like you. Go, you know, look for those. Just because they look like you doesn't mean that they're just like you. Right. Um, they come from, a lot of people come from very hurtful circumstances. Right. And um, just because they look like you doesn't mean they go to the church down the road. Right. Um, it, everybody has a different story. Yeah. And, um, you know, the place where I work out, it's a lot of women. And a lot of them just kind of stand there and stare at each other. Sounds really awkward. What's that? That's how guys work out, too. <laughs> Some of them will talk to each other. But it is kind of just a, I don't know, sizing you up or judging you kind of thing. But, you know, if you just start talking and make, you know, making right, friends absolutely. and, you know, do, you'll learn a lot of stories about people and just getting to know someone's story right. and sharing with them why you are where you are right. is it has a lot to do with why you love Jesus. Which is part of the reason we started with love your literal neighbors because we can go on this big quest to find this particular neighbor that doesn't right. exist. And at the end of the day, love no one. So just start with the, the awkward staring at the gym, you know, pick, pick that person. Walter, last comment, and then I want to pray for us. I was just going to um, just piggyback a little bit on what you said in terms of, you know, equipping people. I tell my students, and I tell, you know, um, when I have an opportunity to, to preach about this, is no one can deny your story of what God has done in your life. So uh, regardless of a lot of times we do feel like, we're not equipped in terms of, um, you know, I don't know exactly uh, where in Scripture it says Bobsy Blah. But, um, but one thing that, you know, the woman at the well and um, the man who was, uh, you know, a, a demon possessed in the, in the cemetery, uh, they just shared their story. Said, this is what God has done for me. And, I mean, no one can say, well, you don't know what you're talking about. You know, it's your story. Right. No one can deny that, and just, I think that has been more helpful for me in terms of people seeing, okay, this is how God has worked in his life, and that God is real, right. and that God is active and working. Right. And um, so that's just kind of, in terms of equipping and helping, and just yeah. saying, hey, this is, you know, when we get to that moment where we feel that the Spirit is directing and moving us to say, right. hey, you know, this is why I go to church, this is what God has done in 
in my life. That, you know, it gives us a chance Absolutely. to be vulnerable. Well, and, and I think uh, this will be my final comment before we conclude. In the world that we're in, this is based on me and my peers and uh, some of the college students in our church I've talked to. When we talk about apologetics, somebody asked me on the plane the other day, you ever do any studies in apologetics? And the truth is I really don't because most of my peers aren't concerned about an archaeological dig that will find a fragment of Noah's Ark. Okay? Uh, the best apology <coughs> we can make for Jesus is to be the presence of Jesus. You know, a baked casserole for a sick family. Um, a visit to someone who's hurting, raking the leaves of the neighbor who's too old to do so. Embodying the presence of Jesus may be, in the world we're in, the best apology you can make for the existence of Christ and his work in our lives and our world. So, my hope would be that you would go home, go back to your churches, and pray about and think about you individually. You may have no control over that as a community. What would it be like if you woke up every day and thought, how could I live more deeply and filter my entire world through loving God and loving neighbor. Let me pray for us. Thank you all for coming today. Thank you. God, we are so grateful for these ancient words that we've read today that still speak so deeply into our lives. Lord, we are thankful, God, that though we can't control it and master it, that though we don't know where it's going, that your spirit is at work and alive in our lives and in this world. That, Lord, this is your church. And we shouldn't be overly concerned about whether or not we can grow them or not, but trust you with that work. And let's focus on what we have been called to, to be a people who are shaped by loving you and loving neighbors. Thank you, God, for all the people that are represented here in the communities and churches that are represented. Lord, as we leave, may we live into that idea of being your sent people back home to wherever we go. God, thank you for Christ and for the love that you have shown us in him, through whom we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you all.